right. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, good to uh, see you today, and um, glad to, we could be here to worship together today. Um, hope you've been enjoying everything as things have been uh, changing uh, weather-wise, and uh, take a few less vitamin D tablets. Um, it's going to be good. Guys, we are in the Lenten season, um, and in the Lenten season, as we uh, spoke about last week, what it does is it really helps us to highlight and to um, prepare for the apex of our year, right? Where we're celebrating the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The triumphant victory of Jesus Christ over death, sin, and the grave. And so when we have this slow seal clap, it eventually turns into a riotous applause for all that Jesus Christ is and all that Jesus Christ has done, right? Yes. Come on now. This is part of it. It's the Lenten season leading up to a crescendo where we celebrate all that he is and all that he's done, right? And so we are thankful for him. We are appreciative of him. We, we say, God, you are good, and we glorify you in every way with every breath that we take, right? And so um, in that in light, uh, we have been going through this new series uh, for Lent called The Inside Job, where we're really trying to focus on, because of his death, burial, and resurrection, what has Jesus done in our hearts, or what should he be doing in our hearts by the work of his word and the Holy Spirit as we're set apart to him for his purposes. And we're going through the letter of Peter, which is a general epistle to the church at large um, as to how to live as a Christian um, in light of the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so if you are wondering what you can do devotionally um, throughout this Lenten season, we recommend to you going through 1 Peter with us, a chapter a week where you're really not just reading through it to get through it, right? But reading through it to digest it, to meditate on it, to allow it to transform you as God's working in your heart. And so what we've been doing is we've been using week by week, um, only starting last week, it's almost like people say things, like, you know, I always do this and they've only done it once, right? So, okay, well, last week, what we started with was an acronym and the acronym that we're going to use for the inside job is FIRST, right? Putting God first and allowing this Lenten season to reorient us in terms of putting him first in everything that we think, say, and do. And so we're in First Peter 2 today. Um, last week, if you weren't with us, uh, the F in the acronym was FOCUS, if we are going to live as a holy people in Christ, we've got to have focus, and we've got to give ourselves to that type of focus, that it doesn't happen um, by happenstance, it doesn't happen accidentally that we put Jesus first in our lives, but it takes focus to do so, right? He said, be careful in the way that you live, be careful to obey my commands, be careful to be consecrated to me, right? In all of these things, we've got to be careful, have focus to put him first. Today, what we're going to see as we look at First Peter chapter 2 is um, to actually be set apart to God. It has to do a lot to do with our identity. It has a lot to do with our identity, and our identity needs to be founded, grounded in him, and completely defined by him if we're going to live as a set-apart people in this world. And as we read First Peter, we'll see how many times he talks about this theme. So if you have a Bible today, let's open the First Peter chapter 2. We're going to go through the whole chapter, 1 through 25, and then we'll dig into it, okay? Let's read together. It says, so put away, put away all malice and all deceit 
and hypocrisy and envy and slander. Now, we could stop there and have a whole message just on that first verse, right? That, that, that in and of itself is, is Christian living. If we could just wrap our minds and our hearts around this to put away all malice, which is badness, or having ill will towards other people, right? Putting away all malice and all deceit. And deceit is something that's different than lying, is it not? Like a lot of people will say, I don't lie, but they're pretty deceitful, right? Deception is actually leading somebody to believe something that's not true. It's not actually lying where you're actually speaking a falsehood, but you're leading people to believe something that's not true. You're giving it through innuendo and to all types of hints, and it speaks directly against the integrity that God calls for in his word, that men and women of God are to be women and men of integrity, the same no matter where they are, whom they're with, or what they find themselves participating in. Amen to that? So he says to put away all deceit and hypocrisy, which means to not feign to be one thing and to actually have a life that's different behind closed doors, right? To have a public face or a church face. And then when you're in the work world or you're around your friends or family members who may not know God yet, right? We say that yet because we believe that Jesus brings people to himself, that you're a different person. But he said to put away all hypocrisy and let there be a purity of life and speech and thought and action. Be an example to those who are around you. And this is a big one, right? And all slander. To put away all slander, meaning that you do not, whether it be somebody in the church or outside of the church, you make sure to guard your tongue. You make sure to guard your tongue. And I don't care if it's your boss who you have issue with, I don't care if it's a coworker who disappoints you regularly. I don't care if it's a church member who's disappointed you by their actions and their interaction with you. He says, put away all slander from your lips, meaning do not do anything, whether in public or in private, to tear down someone else's reputation or someone else's opinion of them. God is the judge. We are not. And all that we're to do is humbly serve with, by administering the word of God that can touch and change people. Amen? Okay. That was the first verse. <laughs> okay. Like newborn infants... Long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God not just any way, but through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, 
but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of his visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Oh, this gets hard now. To every human institution. I'm letting that sit for a reason. Whether it be to the emperor as supreme, right? We're a political community, are we not in Chicago? Hello. Whether it be the emperor as supreme, we don't have an emperor. So whether it be the president, the mayor, the alderman, right? Hello, people of Chicago. This is what the Bible says. Do we like it all the time? Answer me. No. Is this a... (laughs) Is this why we choose out of the fear of God, not people, to submit to God and not just to men? Okay. I'm going to keep reading. Or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Oh my goodness. Honor everyone. Is there a qualifier there? Does it say honor only those who you perceive to be honorable? Does it say to honor those only whom you deem respect worthy or trustworthy? No, it in fact says to honor everyone. Treating people, matter of fact, as they don't deserve. Is that not grace? Is that not the grace that we've been shown? And the mercy that we've been shown, where God in his mercy withholds from us that which we actually deserve, and grace is him giving us that which we don't deserve. He says this, honor everyone. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Oh my gosh, honor again the emperor. Servants. Be subject to your masters, this is when you're working a job, with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Okay, this is in the workplace now. Also to the unjust. Anybody ever been in an unjust workplace? Seen a few things that you didn't like, didn't agree with? Felt like I'm trying to get out of here? And then found that once you put your a resume on monster.com, you ended up in a worse condition. He's like, I'm going to help you out. (laughs) Honor those, not just who are good and just, right? But also honor those who are not. For this is a gracious thing. There's that word again. A gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. While suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? 
But if when you do good and suffer for, <clears throat> I'm sorry, but when, if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you are straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. First Peter 2. That's a mouthful. And I don't know if any of you um, often approach uh, the Word of God and you look at it in terms of simply do this and don't do that. But it's a lot more than that. There are commands that are to be obeyed, but the reason that we obey the commands of God are because of who God is, right? The author of life, the ultimate judge, the only judge, right? The one whom we are going to give an account. We actually serve Jesus because of who he is, the second of person in the Trinity, right? We have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So just as he was all 100% human, he was also 100% God. And when we worship him, we're worshiping him as part of the trifecta, part of the triune divinity. But to actually not only serve him as he is, but to live according to the commands that he's given us in this world that doesn't honor or obey him, we've got to adopt an identity that puts him first, the problem that most of us have in the world in which we live is that we're constantly battling to, between two different opinions of ourselves or two different uh, perspectives of who we are. We have our religious perspective where we believe that we're Christian, we belong to Jesus, you know, we're um, a son or a daughter of God, and we try to live nobly according to his word, but then, then we like to call it the real world, right? And in the real world, you're constantly pulled in a direction as if you do not have to live according to that foundation or that standard of the identity that he's trying to give you in himself. But God is saying, according to 1 Peter, that if you are going to live properly, steadily, steadfastly, faithfully as a believer, as a Christian, you've got to have a mind that's, in essence, otherworldly. Otherworldly that this gospel that was preached to you, that identifies you, that should shape you and mold all of your interactions, all of your pursuits, and all of your thoughts goes beyond just what you see around you. It actually comes to um, fruition when we have our mindset on who he is and who he's made us to be. Now, I'm not going to list all of these for you on the screen because I'd actually like you to go back and read it in First uh, Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2 is set up in a great way because in at least 14 instances, it talks about the identity of Jesus Christ, who he is. It's not comprehensive, meaning it's not all that he is, but it says at least 14 things about him that are important for us to understand, embrace in our hearts, and relate to him accordingly if we're going to serve him faithfully. But at the same time, it also says at least 14 things about the believer just in that one chapter. 
just in that one chapter, that if you actually study it, if you meditate on it, if you actually allow it to form and shape your identity in him, it will actually free you to live faithfully and in his purposes, no matter who you are, no matter what you do for a living, no matter whom you're with, or no matter what you're putting your hands to. See, he's giving this again as a general epistle for all believers. He says that regardless of where you find yourself, this will help you if you adopt the identity of Christ that he has for you. So what are those 14 things? We see that, first of all, talking about Jesus, it talks in 1 Peter chapter 2 about Jesus being a living stone. Now that's the good news because Jesus is a rock, right? That when you come to him, you don't come to somebody who's fickle. You don't come to somebody who's wavering. You don't come to somebody who's changing his opinion about himself, about you, or the world around you. Jesus Christ, the scripture says, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And when the Bible talks about God and his nature, he made a declaration about himself saying, I, the Lord, do not change. I, the Lord, do not change. I don't change my mind. And so what you've come to know about me through my word, you can know about me until I make my return. That it doesn't matter how the times are changing around you. God says, my ways are eternal. My word is eternal. And it applies to every generation. And it has an application to every generation. That any generation that clings to his word and his ways will be set free and prepared for the eternal life that he has for them in Christ. He's a stone. He's not brushed back and forth, blown here and there by every wind of philosophy or teaching. But in the midst of that, we see that times do a change. And in the midst of times of changing, what did it say about Christ? He's rejected by men. That's part of his identity. Anybody realize that? We may like him in here. We may embrace his words in here. But even when he was walking the earth in his fullness, in his ministry, in the flesh, Jesus was opening blind eyes, opening deaf ears, opening, um, raising people from the dead. But still, in the midst of those miracles in front of people's eyes, he was rejected by men. How much more so when we're being a testimony to what he said and what he's done 2,000 years after his earthly ministry. You better believe that the Lord of all heaven and earth is going to continue to be rejected by men, but that doesn't mean that you don't need to serve him. You need to embrace the fact that the God that you serve isn't always going to be popular. The God that you serve isn't always going to be giving ways that are um, um, embraced by the culture that you find around you. And until you can settle that in your heart, you're always going to be doing a dance. You're always going to be trying to have one foot in the world and one foot outside of it. How can I be cool and accepted by the world around me, but still pleasing to the one who's eternal and who knows me? But if you embrace the fact that he was rejected by men, but still yet is Lord of all heaven and earth, then you can receive him as he is. Rejected by men. Number three, though he was rejected by men, he was chosen. This Jesus was chosen and precious in the sight of God. You see, just because somebody's rejected by people doesn't mean that God's rejecting them. Just because somebody's rejected or scorned by the humanity and the culture, uh, we, we live in a culture that's full of a mob mentality, groupthink. Anybody realize that? We have groupthink and a mob mentality. 
It reminds me of the days of Ephesus when Paul was going into the pagan world and he was ministering Jesus amongst the Ephesians. And at that time, they traditionally served one of the Greek gods called Artemis, right? And as they were preaching the gospel, a mob formed in opposition to the gospel being preached and they were shouting out in contradiction to that which Paul was preaching, great as Artemis of the Ephesians. And they tried to reason with them and they tried to preach saying, no, 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 no. The living God has shown himself through his son, Jesus died, buried, and resurrected. But they shouted all the louder, no, great as Artemis of the Ephesians. And they rioted against those who were preaching so much so that it said about them, the people who were mobbing didn't even know why they were there. They didn't even know why they were there. They were just carried along by the mob mentality that was stirred up amongst them. And has anybody ever felt that or experienced that on social media or in the news or as pundits begin to speak? It is a mob mentality. A mob mentality against God, his ways, but Jesus is chosen and precious in the sight of God the Father. You've got to embrace that. He's the cornerstone. Number four, he's the cornerstone, which means that when you're building a building, it's the foundation stone. It's the most important stone in the building. If you remove that cornerstone, everything comes down. He says, I'm the cornerstone of all of life, all of existence, all of reality. He's a cornerstone. He's the one who, as people believe in him, number five, will not be put to shame. He says, as you entrust yourself to me, he said, though I'm rejected by men, I'm chosen and precious in the sight of God. I'm the cornerstone. And if you put your trust in me, you will not be put to shame. Why? Because the very one who speaks on Jesus' behalf begins to speak on your behalf. That you have the backup of heaven and not necessarily of your own machinations, your own concoctions, or your own doing. You have one who's big daddy, right? It's sort of like you have big daddy coming to the scene and working on behalf of the children who we purchase by our, his own blood, the blood of his son. He's a stone, though, of stumbling and a rock of offense. That's what it said about Jesus, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And even as he's a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, he's also our example. He's our example. He's our example of how to live, rejected by men, but chosen by God, precious in his sight, and our example how to live in the midst of suffering until he brings all things under his authority and under his power. He says, what I suffered, you will suffer if you're following me. Isn't that the truth? He says, listen, you're trying to avoid it, but if you're following me the way that I'm living, it, the same type of persecution that came to me, it will come to you. And if you're only trying to avoid it, what's going to happen is it, you'll lead ultimately a life of compromise. A life of compromise where you're trying to please men rather than God and actually trying to be chosen and precious in the sight of men rather than God who wants to speak on your behalf. Our example, he committed no sin. He was one without deceit in his mouth. He was the suffering servant, the one who did not return reviling with reviling, but he was a bearer of our sins that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. He's our healer by his wounds, and he is the shepherd and overseer of our souls. All of that needs to be digested, needs to be meditated on, as term, in terms of the identity of Jesus Christ. 14 things said about him in one chapter. What does he say about us? He says another 14 things. 
Now, even Gandhi understood it when he says this. He says, man often becomes what he believes himself to be. He didn't know Jesus, but he had an understanding of these things. If I keep on saying to myself that I cannot do a certain thing, it is impossible that I may end by really becoming incapable of doing it. On the contrary, if I have the belief that I can do it, I shall surely acquire the capacity to do it, even if I may not have it at the beginning. The importance of your identity is actually understood even by unbelievers. The importance of who you are made to be, and therefore it produces every type of action, interaction, and pursuit that comes out of your life, were understood even by people who weren't necessarily in reconciled with him. What does it say about the believer? Well, it says, number one, that we're like newborn babies. We're like newborn babies. And newborn babies can't do much for themselves, right? Anybody ever babysit in here? Okay, they cannot do much for themselves except cause a stink, you know, cause a headache, you know what I mean? And then, you know, they, sm they smell all right sometimes. But the thing about it is newborn babies, newborn babies need to crave pure spiritual milk. It's what we talked about last week when we're talking about the Word of God. There is no getting to the deeper things of God. There is no getting past the foundations of the faith if you don't have the fundamentals in you. If you don't have the fundamentals about repentance, faith in God, baptisms, and actually a realization that God is going to call to account everything in humanity, you've got to get that in you. He said, like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk. But number two, he says about us that we're like living stones. Just as he's a living stone alive, we're like living stones being built up into a spiritual house. We're like living stones being built up into a spiritual house. And that cuts against every idea of individualized spirituality that exists in our Western modern culture. Does it not? So many times people are talking about, well, I have a faith, but it's just mine. You know, it might be true for you, but not for me. But that is not what God says about the house that he's building. The house that he's building is built by people and those stones that make it up are individual lives. And when he looks at his people, when he's talking about the you, he's not declaring you as an individual. He's talking to the you as the church, the living stones coming together as a house unto his glory. And so when he says, get an identity that's one that I'm giving you, that not is one that you're procreating for yourself, he says, come into this group think, but it's a group think that basically comes from me, the heavenly father right? Who wants to create and identify his people as a temple to bring worship and honor to his name. And in doing so, he says that his people are a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That there is no giving God the honor and the worship that he deserves without honoring the name of Jesus without actually pointing to him as the only way to God and the one who's made a way to him. That we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession. Those who are to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's an identity issue. When you show up at work or you show up at a job, right? you know what you're there to do. I, I hope, right? You know what you're getting paid for, right? When you show up at a job. 
In the same way, God is not only telling you who he is, he's not only telling you who you are as his child, he's saying, this is what I've given you to do. Does that say that he's just giving that responsibility to Peter? Does it say that he's just giving that responsibility to the deacons or the elders? Does it say that he's just giving that responsibility to the professionals? The answer is no. He said, this is a general epistle going to all believers at all times, saying that I'm calling you a chosen race, a royal priesthood, that you might declare the excellencies of the one who brought you out of darkness and into light. So that means, has anyone in here been brought out of darkness and into light? Anyone at all? Yes, good news, right? That should be many of us in here. Doesn't have to be all of us yet, but it can be at the end of this day. Okay, but here's the thing. It's like he says, listen, I'm telling you, I brought you out, but your responsibility after that is to help declare the excellencies of God. Embrace that as an identity. Because when you show up day by day, you'll know what it is you're called to do. When you have opportunity, and let me say this, not just when you think you have opportunity, but when you look for it, and then all of a sudden it magically appears, right? There's a difference in terms of the opportunity that are always there staring us in the face and the ones that we're actually looking for, and then we actually embrace because we were looking for it. It's like radio waves, right? Anybody ever see radio waves? Right. Okay. But the thing is, they're always going on around us. And it's only when we put up that antenna that we receive it. We receive the music over the waves, right? In the same way, those are the opportunities that God's giving you by his identity. Those who proclaim his excellencies. But you've got to know your identity is you're God's people. You're God's people. You belong to him. Those who've received mercy and you are beloved. You're beloved, but in the midst of being beloved, you're a sojourner and an exile. You're a sojourner and an exile. You ever think about that? What does that mean? That means that this world isn't our ultimate home. Hello, this world is not our ultimate home. The problem most Christians have is they live as if it is. And so all that they give themselves to, all that they pursue is for this world only. When the world to come is the eternal one, and that's the one that's going to last. And according to his word, we're going to be living off of the reward of what we do in this short period of time. Let me make this clear. Salvation is based on not what you do for God, but what Jesus has done for you. Salvation is a free gift to everyone who believes, but the reward of God is absolutely based on what you do for him. Amen. Oh, that's Bible. That's Bible. Salvation is based on what he did for you. Reward is based on what you do for him. He said, I'm going to reward each person according to what they have done. So it matters what I do with my day. It matters what I do with my time. It matters what I do with my resources. It matters what I do when I have the choice, thinking that it's all mine to dispense as I please. I'm a sojourner, and I'm an exile, and one day I'm going to get to my home, but I want to meet him as a friend saying, well done, good and faithful servant. And that's the next identity. <laughs> that he makes clear. You're a servant. 
You are a child of God. But let me tell you, at the same time, he calls you a servant. In this sort of touchy-feely culture that we have nowadays, everybody's stroking each other's emotions. It's fine. You know, oh, God loves you. You know, it's good. He does love you. But people forget about the word servant. And what is a servant? A servant doesn't declare their own rights, do they? A servant doesn't declare what is theirs and what's not theirs because it doesn't belong to them in the first place. A servant is one who's waiting for the orders or the directives of the master and they're fulfilling it faithfully as the master provides provision for them as they live in his house, his house or her household, right? And the identity that he gives us is servants of the living God, not just servants, but beloved servants and beloved servants who he ultimately calls sheep. Now, the thing about sheep is that they're dumb. <laughs> Isn't that the truth? Now, he wasn't, I don't think, trying to offend us, but sort of. He's trying to like, like give us the reality of our natures. And the thing about sheep are that they actually will follow the rod and the staff of the shepherd, right? The shepherd has a rod and a staff in his hand. And what this rod does is it fights off the wolf that comes for the sheep's life, right? And the staff gently guides the sheep to the place of provision, the, the, the problem with sheep, though, is that no matter how often they find the provision or they follow the directives of the shepherd, if the shepherd takes their eye off the sheep, what do the sheep generally do? <laughs> right? And go astray. They go astray. He calls us sheep for a reason. He says, you've got to know thyself. And know that unless you're diligent, unless you're vigilant about the things of God, you too, I too, will go astray. But the good news is we have an overseer of our souls, a good shepherd who is constantly coming after us. And when he comes with his rod and his staff to fight off the enemy and bring us back on course, our job is to embrace the identity that he's once again placing upon us because he says, therein is your victory. Therein is your deliverance. Therein is your purpose. Come back to the overseer and shepherd of your soul. And he'll bring you back into the life eternal that he's called you to. But don't be like a sheep that gets picked off because you think you know it all. Because you think you've been there and done that and therefore end up in the lion's den consumed by the lion who comes to devour. Devour people's souls. Identity is important also because it leads to the work of God, which is by faith. First Timothy one verses three through five, Paul was instructing his um, young uh, disciple, Timothy, and he's talking about how to give instruction in the church. Now, the thing about uh, this is that he says, I, I put it in the NIV uh, 1984 edition. That's my favorite version um, from back in the day. But he, he said this, this way, he says, as I urged you, Timothy, when I went into Ma uh, Macedonia, I want you to stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrines any longer, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. These promote controversies rather than God's work, which is by faith. 
God's work, which is by faith. See, ultimately, we don't ever cul-de-sac, as we've said before, with ourselves, but his identity actually produces in us not only a trust in God, a knowledge of God, but it produces in us and through us a work which has to be by faith. But if you're going to live by faith, you've got to have an identity that's firmly established so that you can walk in that which he's called you to do. If you don't have the confidence that God's called you to be something or to do something, you won't step out in trust or confidence that you can accomplish it. But if you've heard a word from the Lord, that's why we love even prophetic ministry, right? Because if you have a word giving you strengthening, encouragement, and comfort, according to 1 Corinthians 14, you have confidence to step out and be something you might otherwise not have been outside of God. He says, but when you've assumed his identity, the identity that he's given you, he says, you're able to walk and produce works by faith. He said, the goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. C.S. Lewis said this in Mere Christianity. He says that he's trying to call you up into a life of faith. He's trying to call you by your identity that he puts upon you, that he brands you with, that he stirs in your soul and actually says, this is who I am. This is who I've called you to be. This is what I've called you to do. And some of us say, I don't feel that way. I don't think that way about myself. I don't know that I could ever be that holy man or woman of God set apart for his purposes. This is what C.S. Lewis said. He says, what is the good of pretending to be what you are not? Well, on the human level, you know, there are two kinds of pretending. There is a bad kind where the pretense is there instead of the real thing, as when a man pretends he is going to help you instead of really helping you. But there is also a good kind where the pretense leads up to the real thing, when you are not feeling particularly friendly, but know you ought to be. Come on now, going back to this word in First Peter, right? Anybody ever heard the word fake it till you make it? Yes, this is what he's talking about. Fake it till you make it. Put your, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ until Christ actually overflows out of your heart. He said, this is a good type of pretending. He said that there is a good kind where the pretense leads up to the real thing. When you are not feeling particularly friendly, but know you ought to be, the best thing you can do very often is to put on a friendly manner and behave as if you were a nicer person than you actually are. Yes, pretend it. And in a few minutes, as we have all noticed, you will be really feeling friendlier than you are, than you were rather. Very often, the only way to get a quality in reality is to start behaving as if you had it already. Like now. (laughs) It doesn't matter if you feel like it. What has God said about you? Stop talking about yourself being a worm and, oh, the sinner that I am. You need to start declaring over yourself, I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, my Lord. And I'm free from sin. Free from sin. Forgiven. Justified. Being sanctified. In him. I don't feel like it, but that is who I am. Why? Because he said so. 
And if I by faith embrace it, and I by faith begin to act like it, you better believe eventually it will become me. It will become who I am. See, we don't believe in defeatism here. We believe in the triumphant victory, overpowering victory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when he says, I've made you a new creation, he said, you might have forgotten who I've made you to be, but you can come back now to the shepherd and overseer of your soul and begin to live that way. And when he's called you to do something specific, you need to cling to it and live it out by faith. Uh, Steve Jobs often said this. He, he said, your time is limited, so don't waste it living someone else's life. <laughs> your time is limited, and he obviously found that out himself, right? But Paul, embracing this type of mentality... You ever notice how the writers of the epistles, the writers of the letters actually started the letters? Because they were appealing to people in an otherworldly way, right? They're saying, I'm calling you to live differently than what you see around you, what you perceive around you. Purposes that you won't actually see come to fruition until you meet Jesus face to face, face one day. Things that you have to do by faith if you're going to get your reward in him, Right? And so what they were continually having to start these letters with was what? Paul, an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. James, a servant of the Lord, right? Jude, a servant, right? They were starting with their identity so that out of their identity would come their activity, out of their identity would come their faith to even speak on matters that would shape people's lives, not only in their generation, but their generations to come. As they were writing by the Holy Spirit, the scripture that we read and cling to today. He says, I'm writing these things out of that identity. I'll just give you one. It says in Romans 1, 1 through 5, Paul said, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him and for his name's sake, we have received grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles to the obedience that once again comes from faith. <laughs> to the obedience that comes from faith. And because of it, I think that uh, it was actually uh, my pastor, who, our sending pastor from our church in North Carolina, he would always say this, and I, I thought it was a catchy phrase, so I wrote it down. He actually said this. He, he actually said, Identity precedes activity in the kingdom of God. Activity precedes activity in the kingdom of God. You've got to know who he is and who he's made you to be before you're ever going to have the faith to walk it out in obedience to him. So as you come to him, 
His scripture tells you who he is. His scripture tells you who you are as a child of God. But in addition to that, you need to come to him, the living stone, and have him speak to you so he can give you marching orders. And as he gives you marching orders, you by faith walk it out in obedience, consistency, perseverance, and love. And I'll end with this saying that there was an old movie called The War Horse. Anybody seen The War Horse? Okay, it's several years old. Please look it up on YouTube. Well, don't. Well, it's fine. Okay. <laughs> War Horse. I was going to actually show you the trailer, but it wouldn't make sense unless you saw it. You'd be like, that was cute, Roland. Okay, but here, here's the thing. The War Horse was talking about really like these Clydesdales, you know, that are mixed with the quarter horses that back in medieval times, there were actually horses that were literally bred for agriculture. There were horses that were bred for war. Is anybody an equestrian around here? Okay, that's cool. All right, so <laughs> they're bred for different things. But the war horse was something significant. And I, I made a couple of notes about it, and it was, it was interesting. It said the workhorse was the agricultural horse. It was the Clydesdale that you think about. When you think about, what is it, Budweiser? Is it Budweiser that has the... Okay, good. Okay. Sorry. I like fruity drinks. All right, so <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> the workhorse and war horse... They have different purposes and different training. The war horse, the, um, the war horse cannot be skittish when bullets or arrows are flying. It must be steady, steady, and charging into battle. The workhorse, on the other hand, would be unsettled in a war environment and run from the fight. You think about the difference between the two different horses. The war horse is trained for speed and agility to dodge even the bullets or the back in the arrows that were flying at them. The Clydesdale for strength and perseverance, a steady discipline plowing the same field day after day after day. You think about even biblical examples of identities that God put on different individuals. King David, if you ever read his story, he was like a war horse, built for war, built for combat, built for that which God was going to do to advance his kingdom amongst his people, where his son Solomon was built for diplomacy, built for diplomacy, actually the one who would extend the kingdom through government and not necessarily just going to war. The point of the matter is, is that neither one should have, been, have tried to be the other. In God's time, David needed to be the war horse. And in his time, Solomon needed to be the workhorse. In the same way, if you are going to fulfill your purpose in God, you've got to know his identity for you. What has he called you to be? Whether in your business, your neighborhood, your community, your family. And when you know that identity, then no matter the obstacles or the opposition that comes because you're serving the living God, you're able to walk in it in grace, in faith, and in strength. I, for identity, put him first. Amen? Done for today. Worship team, if we could, go back into it.